Well, good morning, friends. So good to be with everybody. I'm thinking of all of you at our Bolingbrook campus, everybody at the 95th Street campus. You know, I know that hardship, it, it's for everyone. You're either in a hardship now or one's coming on the horizon, but the storms of life are something that we all deal with. And in this series called Anchored, we're discovering how the Lord can be the anchor for our souls, that the imagery is that found out of the book of Hebrews, that just like a boat in the middle of a storm, the anchor brings a stability, a strength, a hope that can be ours. And it's one thing to just study the dynamic, it's another thing to live it. And I'm praying for all of us at all of our campuses that we live it. It was some years ago now that my wife and I were having a house built. We were before we moved to Naperville, we were up in Grays Lake, this town on the far north side. And we had bought a, a vacant lot in the old part of town. And the excavator had been digging. And he saw something he wanted to show me. He said, Jeff, before I go any further on excavating for your foundation, take a look at this. And he showed me what looked to be like a four-by-four patch of dark dirt. And he said, that is night soil. And I'm like, night soil. <laughs> oh, I can't believe it's night soil. I'm like, what's, what's night soil? And he said, uh, night soil is a human excrement. And I'm like, ah, how did I get there? You know, and he explained to me that what we were looking at was a privy. And I still didn't know what a privy was. And he said, a privy is the, the, the ditch or the channel that's dug underneath an old outhouse. He said, Jeff, this neighborhood that you are moving into is 150 years old. Your neighbor's house, 150 years old. And this is an ancient, probably over 100-year-old outhouse that had been abandoned. And I'm like, oh, is that a problem? And he said, uh, no. He said, I just wanted to ask if you, he goes, do you know about privy diggers? And I'm like, uh-uh. He said, there's these amateur archaeologists who like exploring the, the privy, uh, the, the night soil. He goes, here's why. He goes, way back in the ancient times, he goes, they didn't have garbage pickup, and so people tended to throw their waste into the outhouse, and everything's decomposed except for a few what can be really fun artifacts, antiques from a bygone era. He said, so privy diggers really get into that kind of stuff. He said, I could carefully pull with my backhoe, so it's not going to you know, break some stuff, but I could carefully put this night soil in a special pile if you were interested in becoming a privy digger and digging through in search of artifacts. And he looked at my face, and he said, I shouldn't have asked. He said, I know that was crazy. Of course you don't want to do that. Who wants to do that? He pointed out, he goes, you, you do know that by now, it's just dirt. I mean, it's all decomposed to the point there's no odor. It's just really nutrient-rich dirt. And he goes, forget me for asking, though. And I'm like, no, 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 you asked the right guy. I go, I am a history buff. I'm just trying to get over the mental hurdle of what you're inviting me to do. And I said, yes, 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 I want to be a privy digger. And he said, okay. And so sure enough, he put all of this uh, dirt in a special pile. And with gloves, I dove in and I started digging through. Just wanted to show you a sampling of, of what I found. 
this old jar, it, it says meadow gold on it. On the other side, cottage cheese. That's what cottage cheese used to come in. Uh, and then I found this bottle. This one was really interesting. On the side of this bottle, it says prune syrup. They used it medicinally as a laxative. And from the quantity of night soil, I can tell you it works really well. Uh, what else we got here? Whoops. We have a Listerine bottle, you know. They were doing, using Listerine way back. And, and a little uh, jar that says Lysol across the top to clean with. And uh, sure enough, uh, what is that? Milk bottle. It was so much fun. I felt like I was going back in time, that I was exploring this family, if you will, who lived at this exact same location, but over a hundred years ago. And it was just a real treat. Now, it was a mixed bag, quite literally. When you, when you dig through stuff as a privy digger, you're, you're, you're intentionally engaging in a uh, dirty uh, praxis. There's a lot of undesirable material that you have to push aside in order to find the treasure. And it dawned on me, boy, this is a parable for life. Life, if done the right way, is privy digging. There is a lot of undesirable material. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of bad. There's a lot of difficult, a lot of disappointment, a lot of pain. But the Christian knows that though we live in a fallen world where so much is broken, there is still good to be found. The Christian knows that the the goodness of God displayed both in his original created beauty and displayed in his activity where he blesses us in the present, there is so much beauty to be enjoyed if you have the courage and the want to to search for it. And so I'd ask you, are you a privy digger? Spiritually speaking, I pray that as we go through this study together, you'll get to a place where you'll say, I want to be. I want to be one of those people that says, I know there's blessing to be found even in the hardest of times. I'm going to find it, and I'm going to enjoy it deeply. So that's what Paul teaches us in this present text. Folks, we're going to be looking now at a... uh, Again, we're studying the last two chapters of the book of Acts, and we're looking at a moment where Paul is in the worst of circumstances. The storm upon the boat is immense. Let me just show the map from last week to reorient you. Uh, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, brought to this harbor city of Caesarea, put on trial there, was determined that he needed to go all the way to Rome to go before the the emperor of Rome, and and it was going to require him to go as a prisoner. If he's going to be tried before the emperor, he's going to have to get on a boat with guards watching him, prisoner transport. And sure enough, this sailing voyage across the Mediterranean started good enough, but as the fall months passed, they got to where it was pushing it, because you don't want to sail in the winter. The storms on the Mediterranean Sea during the winter are notoriously destructive. And so their goal was to winter on the west side of the island of Crete. They were pushing it to get there, and they pushed it 
too long into the fall because sure enough, hurricane force winds swept down and preventing them from getting to the harbor of their goal. And instead, they were pushed out into the Adriatic portion of the Mediterranean. And it's two weeks they were pummeled with waves so severe that it almost broke up the boat. The storm was so relenting that for two weeks they saw neither the sun at day or the stars at night. It just kept pounding. This is horrific. In the text we're about to read, they are right near this little island called Malta. And you say, well, that's good. And I say, no, it's not. In fact, one of the most dangerous places at sea is kind of near land. Here's why. When there is a storm, the boat is being pushed about uncontrollably, and when the waters get shallower, you can hit rocks that rip open the bottom of the boat, and yet you're still far enough away from the land that in a storm there's no chance of swimming and making it. My great-great-grandfather, I I, I come from sailing roots, that's why I know so much and you know nothing. My great-great-grandfather, his name was was Jorgen Sorensen, and he died at sea not that far from the shore because, yes, the boat hit rocks, was ripped apart, and all of the men drowned too far to be able, in a storm at least, to swim. And so that's where Paul and his fellow people aboard this boat are at. And let me read to you. So the passage is found, if you if you incline to read along, you can find on page 1,123, 1123, on the Bible in the seat backs. But it's Acts chapter 27, verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. How does a sailor sense that? I don't know. Do they smell the air? Do they see different types of waves? I don't know that much. But they sensed it, and so they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found that now it was 90 feet deep. You see, it's getting more shallow. That's the danger. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors, that is the professional sailors who are responsible for steering and maneuvering the ship, they let down the lifeboat into the sea pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. The lifeboat did not have enough space for many, and these sailors said, we're going to die, and so let's pretend that we're lowering anchors, but really let's lower the lifeboat, and so we can be saved, and all of our passengers are going to die. Great. Nice job, guys. Then Paul said to the centurion, Paul caught him in the act. He said to the centurion and the soldiers, hey, unless these guys stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, and they let the lifeboat drift away. Doesn't that sound like movie material going on here? Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have not eaten anything. And so now I urge you, take some food. You'll need it to survive. Not one of you 
will lose a single hair from his head. And after Paul had said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of all of them. And then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they all lightened the ship by throwing the rest of the grain into the sea. Interesting, interesting stuff. Well, folks, uh, I'd like to start by highlighting these words. They were all encouraged. That is amazing. They were encouraged in their darkest hour. I mean, this is the moment after two weeks of just being pummeled by hardship. This is the moment when death was most close and eminent. And yet they were encouraged. The word that's translated encouraged is the Greek word uh, enthusmos. And, and it means to be cheered up. It means to be enlivened in your spirit, to feel better. Somehow Paul led these men in the midst of their darkest hour to find joy. And it begs the question, how do you do that? How do you find an emotional lift in the moment of darkest peril? It's a really good question, and it's all about food. Now, kind of. It's about more than food. It's about food and thankfulness for food. It's about cultivating a heart of gratitude. In fact, today's message is entitled, Thankful. Last week, Courageous. In order to survive the storms of life, you must be courageous, we learned. You must be thankful this week. And I want to spend some time studying with you exactly what Paul did and what Paul did in leading the others that led to this emotional upswing because we want to be encouraged. We want to have an emotional upswing. We want to find joy in our darkest hour if it can be found, and it can. And so I'd like to draw out three observations or three steps, if you will, towards or in the journey of thankfulness that yield joy even in the hardest of times. Ready? The first one is found in this verse. If you recall, uh, let me read it again, verse 33. Paul urged them all to eat. He said, guys, for the last 14 days, we've been in constant suspense and haven't eaten anything. What did the suspense do? For 14 days, the constant suspense made them forget to eat. Folks, the boat had food. Uh, Every boat would have a galley, which is the kitchen, and a hold, which is a storage room off of the galley. And that galley hold would have been filled with all kinds of food. And Paul is thinking, he's just like, you know, the boat's going down. It's getting shallower. It's going to go down soon. This food is going to go down. Why in the world are we failing to enjoy the food right beneath our feet? Paul said, this is crazy. I want to just warn you, hardship has a way of taking your eyes off of the blessings of God all around you. Do you notice that? You get distracted by the suspense. Uh, We are so preoccupied with the bad that we can't see the good. And Paul called a time out. He goes, I think this is crazy that we're going without food when it's right below us. I say we eat. And the people agreed. Here's the point I'd like to make. Notice it. 
The first step in enjoying the blessings of God, the the treasure even in the night soil times of life, the first thing is you got to notice it. And folks, I hope you and I don't become people who get so down in dark times that we can't see any good. That we get to be where we're like, oh, my life is terrible. Everything's terrible. No, it's not. It's never all bad. Yes, there's a lot that's broken, and maybe there are a lot of problems, but the grace and goodness of God can be seen and discovered in every human life. So the question is, do you have eyes to see it? And Do you need to say, God, help me grow in my capacity to notice the good, even in bad times? Just this week, I was having dinner with my family, and my wife asked me, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, how am I? She goes, you just seem distracted, down. I'm like, ah, yeah, you caught me. And I was. Uh, The truth is I was, as I sat at the table, still mulling over work problems. You know, believe it or not, churches have problems too. And I was thinking about them, and I was agonizing, and I was down. I was in a funk, if you will. And I was miserable. Isn't that crazy? I was miserable in the immediate proximity of great blessing. You say, what great blessing are you talking about? Food, for one. My wife had put together a delicious meal, and I wasn't tasting anything. You know, swallowing it without any enjoyment. Why? Because I was preoccupied by the bad. More than the food. How about the family? I mean, I have a beautiful, wonderful wife and glorious children, and I'm sitting around a table with them, failing to enjoy them at all. And it's a precious night, a a chance to be together. I mean, these are numbered in my case, as my daughter is headed to college at the end of the summer. And come on, Jeff, enjoy it. And I didn't even see it. Why? Because I was so preoccupied with the bad. And folks, that tends to be how we roll. And so the first step is a clear one. I got to stop this. I got to, with God's help, start noticing beauty even in hard times. Okay, what's the next verse? The next verse I want to point to is verse 38. It says, When they had eaten as much as they wanted. Uh, We got to talk about that. Because in the ancient world, you don't, on a ship, eat as much as you want. Food was rationed. It was all very carefully calculated. They calculated how many passengers they would have, how many days at sea, and they only put enough food on that ship that would be sufficient to meet the need. Why? Because it's a business, and the less food you have, the more cargo you can carry and the more money you can make. And so they always talked about rationing. Are they rationing? No! Folks, this is a feast. In this unique moment, they're saying, people, eat as much as you want. And I can imagine the galley worker going, should I bring out the cherry cheesecake? Bring it out! You know, what, what about the ham that we were playing? Bring it out! Bring it, I'm even a ham there, they don't eat pig. But bring it all out! Why? Because we're going to just dive in and have a wonderful feast, even in the storm. The point I'd like to make is that we must enjoy it. You know, going back to me at the dinner table, 
for me to notice, wow, that's interesting, Jeff, you're so preoccupied with the bad that you can't even see the blessings that are around you. Well, that's a step. But the next step is change. Enjoy the blessings of God. I I paused to notice what I was eating and said, darling, this is delicious. And I basked in the delicacy she had prepared. I enjoyed my family. I started engaging with them and laughing with them and leaning into the blessing that is there. And folks, we must not only notice the blessings, drink deep, enjoy, lean into, savor the good even in bad days. There's one more. Maybe the most important verse of this section is found in verse 35 where Paul took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. In front of all of the people, 175 others. He says, hey everybody, we're before we feast. I know you're ready and I'm ready. Dude, this is going to be awesome. Let me do something maybe that you've never done before. There is a God who created the world and provided this food. Let's talk to him, shall we? Let's celebrate him through prayer of thanks. And I can imagine some of them going, what's he doing, you know? And this was new to many, but not new to Paul. And Paul turned to God and recognized God as the giver of all good gifts, as it says in James 1. And he said, let's enjoy it. So let's put that down. Thank God for it is, is the third step. You know, the non-believers, atheists, could do these first two steps. They can notice good things. They can enjoy good things. But only the Christian can engage God and celebrate God and worship God in the midst of enjoying the blessings he has provided. That's what this is. Don't minimize thankfulness. Some people say thankfulness is teaching your children to utter the words, thank you. Oh, it's so much more than that. Thanksgiving with the Lord is a journey of worship with him. It's, hey, as I'm enjoying this meal and laughing with my kids, God, I'm going to grab the awareness of you and bring it into this. I want to engage with you, too. And I want to say, Lord, thank you for the food. Lord, every night I am blessed with food to eat. And Lord, look at my family. Look at my wife. Oh, God, how can I express how grateful I am for the work you've done in pulling together this family and giving us this night to be together. Oh, the best enjoyment of blessing is one that involves the giver and celebrates him and says, bravo, God, what you've done is outstanding. Uh, This whole thing that Paul's got going here is something he described in a letter that he wrote to Timothy. Let me read it now. 1 Timothy 4.3 says, Paul writing to Timothy says, God created food to be received with thanksgiving. Unless you think it's just food we're talking about, Paul continues in verse 4, everything God created is good and to be received with thanksgiving. In the midst of a difficult world, the good that God created is there. It's to be received, I mean, to be enjoyed. But not just enjoyed, enjoyed with thanksgiving. Folks, this brings joy. I I have a buddy of mine who's trying to do this. In fact, when he prays for a meal, he will often pray, Lord, I pray you would help us to eat like Christians. 
Isn't that an interesting phrase? Do you eat like a Christian? And you're like, what does that mean? I mean, how does a Christian uniquely eat? How do they eat differently than a non-Christian? It's a good question. And it has to do with this. The, the, the Christian recognizes that the delicious and wonderful bounty of the food is a God thing, that the capacity to eat is a God thing, that the blessing is a God thing. And so the Christian enjoys the food and enjoys his God in the enjoyment of the food. And only a, You're still confused. Maybe I should demonstrate. All right, here's how a Christian eats. I, my daughter uh, is working at Le Chocolat in da- downtown Naperville. And so that's uh, a very, very good place. And I swung by and I purchased a uh, pecan turtle. Huh? Is that glorious or what? And uh, I am going to show you how a Christian eats this. <laughs> so, uh, okay, a little chuckle's appropriate, but I'm also dead serious. Increasingly, this is how I'm trying to eat it is to say, that is beautiful. And God, I give you praise for making that. And you say, did God make that? Oh, he did in many ways. God created chocolate, amen? Amen. He thought of us and he made the cocoa beans so that the flavor of chocolate would be enjoyed by his people. And pecans are a nut that goes well with chocolate and God knew this and he blessed us with it. And caramel... I don't know what caramel is, but it's wonderful. And God made somebody a long time ago creative. You know, our human creativity is a gift from God. And somebody was experimenting with whatever goes into caramel, you know, and mixing those things, and they discovered it. God helped them discover it. And God made the candy makers at Le Chocolat brilliant. Trust me, brilliant. And God gave me the money to buy this. And so I just look at it and I say, Lord, I just, when I see a compilation of all of your goodness coming into this one thing, and oh, if if I'm going to do this right, you got to give me a second here, okay? (laughs) God, nice. All the flavors, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for making us to enjoy all blessings of life. Thank you for making us to enjoy food and providing. And Lord, I I love you a little more right now. (laughs) Folks, you say, come on, Jeff. No, no. All of life, whether it be laughter with children, whether it be the challenge of work, whether it be the blessing of a car, whether it be the beauty of music or the butterfly or the bird or the tree, I mean, it's all to be enjoyed with God celebrating him and his goodness in providing it. It'll change even your darkest hours if you live that way. My mother-in-law is in the darkest of times. I've mentioned a number of times my father-in-law passed away recently, and she is grieving. She's been transparent in saying, I have never felt pain like this in my life. This is the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. And yet we've been staying in touch with her via a group text just to make sure how we know how she's doing. And, and this week we asked, hey, mom, how you doing? 
And she sent a three-word text. I want to put it up here now. Enjoying God's sunshine. And when I saw those three words, I go, there is a woman who gets it. She gets it. She's doing all three of these things. Just in that simple text, I see it. First of all, she notices the blessing of God. She saw the sunshine. You know, some people are so overwhelmed with their pain that they can't even see the beauty around them, the goodness of God. But somehow, by God's grace, in her pain, she noticed, wow, this is a beautiful day. May God give us the capacity to see the good even in the hardest of times. But not more than just recognizing the sunshine, she says, I am trying to enjoy it. I'm intentionally engaging with the blessing of God. I'm stepping outside and letting the bright, warm rays of the sun fall on my body and pausing to say, thank you, God. That is beautiful. She's enjoying it. More than that, She's thanking God for it. She doesn't just say enjoying sunshine. She said, I'm recognizing that it's God's sunshine. The decision to make a heavenly body that brought energy and warmth and light to this planet was God's loving creation, and I see him in it, and I celebrate him in it. And she's understanding that though these days are pain like I've never known, I'm still going to fight to find the beauty and to enjoy it and to celebrate my God as the giver of all good things. She's getting it. Are you? Are you a privy digger? I hope so. Hey, I want to close with one last observation. I want to go back, if you'll allow me, back to uh, verse 35. Let's put it up again. Remember, this is, let me just read it. And as I read it, some of you may say, that sounds familiar. He took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of all of them. And then he broke it and began to eat. Have you recognize some of those words coming together? Let me show you a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11.24, describing what our Lord Jesus Christ did. When he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The celebration of communion as uh, instituted by Jesus involved the same words. It was bread. In fact, let's next slide, highlight. It was bread in both cases. They were breaking it in both cases. There was the decision to give thanks in both cases. And the question is, was Paul trying to say something as he took the bread and broke it, and gave thanks. You know, scholars have speculated, was Paul alluding to the Eucharist, the the Lord's Supper, communion? And the reality of the matter is that the vast majority on board that boat would have gone right over their head. You know, the non-believers wouldn't have understood it at all. But there were a number of believers on that, or at least two, three, Paul, uh, Aristarchus. Last week we learned that Paul picked up his Christian friend Aristarchus, and Luke, the author of the book. And Aristarchus and Luke must have smiled at Paul knowingly when he kind of winked at them, broke the bread, and gave thanks. 
They understood the message that the greatest blessing that we celebrate above all is beyond the food and straight to the act of Christ to die on our behalf. That's the greatest blessing. You want reason for celebration? Look no further than the cross of Christ. If you're a Christian, through his generous act on your behalf, through his suffering the death penalty for you, you're free. Your sin has been washed away. You have been reconciled to the Almighty God both now and for all eternity, and nobody can take that away from you. Do you realize you need no greater reason than to dance even in the rain? In the darkest of days, you can say, this I have. There are so many blessings in life to be enjoyed, but the one above them all is that God demonstrated love in the most unexpected, undeserving, and heroic way imaginable by dying to save my soul. And for that, I will forever thank him. Folks, we're going to do that. We're going to celebrate communion together, as Paul uh, alluded to on that boat. We're going to turn our minds, maybe... It's a storm. I don't know if you're in a storm now. You will be someday if you're not presently. But this storm is a chance for you to look to the Lord and say, Lord, your blessing, the greatest of blessing, is evident to me. Now, here's how it's going to work. As the ushers pass, we're going to sing a song. And uh, we're going to sing a song that celebrates. Don't take it, by the way. As the usher passes, hold on to that communion. Because after the song, we're going to take it together. But the song celebrates our thankfulness to God. And I would encourage you, sing this song of celebration. And then let's turn, and the song is over, to take communion together. Let me offer a word of prayer quickly. Lord, I want to thank you very much for this incredible gift to be able to take communion together. I think of Paul and Aristarchus and Luke breaking bread together on that ship. We acknowledge that storms come and they're hard. But Lord, would you please teach us to be privy diggers? Would you teach us to have this uncanny capacity to see beauty in the ashes of life? And most of all, would you give us an uncanny ability to see, appreciate, and celebrate what Christ did for us and accomplished for us on the cross? We turn now in celebration of Jesus and what he has done. We pray this in his name. Amen.